0: Practical meditation upon the torments of hell. He says three times in that passage where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. Christ gets this from Isaiah himself in Isaiah 66, the very last verse of the book. And they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me, for their worm shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an abhorring unto all flesh. By grace tonight, we'll follow Christ and meditate on hell. We will, as Isaiah says, ourselves tonight, go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against the Lord. May he give us grace as we do so. Look with me first at the text itself. Isaiah 30, verse 33. In it we read four things about hell. The first is its name. It's called here, Tophet. You can read this name in Jeremiah, chapter 7, verse 31. I'll take you to another testimony to it in Jeremiah chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. We read there, they have built also the high places of Baal to burn their sons with fire for burnt offerings unto Baal, which I commanded not, nor spake it, neither came it. Into my mind. What wretched and terrible idolatry and murder. Verse 6 Therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that this place shall no more be called Tophet, nor the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. We have a few things here. One is it is called Tophet at this point, and it used to be called the valley of the son of Hinnom, or perhaps Tophet was a specific place. In the valley of the son of Hinnom, but now it will be the valley of slaughter. This is a prophecy of a great judgment to come. We heard a bit about this judgment when I preached last from Second Kings. We look at the days of Josiah in Second Kings, chapter 23, verse 10, and we'll read about what became of this place. Second Kings 23, verse 10. And he defiled, this is Josiah, Topheth, similar or same place, somewhat different spelling. And he defiled, defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the children of Hinnom, that no man might make his son or his daughter to pass through the fire to Molech. So the name given in our text reminds the people of something they would have known of, of a time and a, play, or a place where there were wretched evil things being done, but then God, in due time after this, brought fitting, terrible judgments. For both reasons, this name speaks of a place of terror and of horror, and thus it's a very fitting name for hell, and that's what it is in this place And you might not see it directly, but this name is picked up by Christ in the New Testament. And many times, including in the passage we read, Mark 9, Christ speaks of hell with the Greek word Gehenna, which means the valley of Hinnom, a shortened form of the other name of this place, Tophet. In our English translation, it's always translated hell. Hell sometimes you'll see the word hell and other Greek words are behind it in the New Testament. But every time, Gehenna, this place of punishment, is translated in English as hell. And it's this place of Tophet. There's its name. Next, it's preparation. God prepares hell in two ways. The first is by his decree, by which he has ordained all things whatsoever that will come to pass he has ordained the existence of hell it says it's ordained of old literally it's ordained from yesterday but if you read this in light of hebrews 13:8 in which we hear that christ is the same yesterday and today and forever the emphasis here is on a time before the present time indeed before any present time before the world was when there was only God he thought of hell he planned it and he also planned to fill it he ordained the residence of hell it says for the king it is prepared we have here in just a few words presented before us this most awful yet true doctrine of reprobation. The decree of God to pass over countless multitudes of men and allow them, indeed, to ordain them to be justly punished forever for their sins and to plan that from eternity we read in Romans 9:22 of the potter who has the right and who exercises that right to make of the clay vessels for dishonor, vessels fitted to destruction, as Proverbs 16:4 says, "God made all things for its purpose, for their purpose, even the wicked, for the day of wrath." And he does so without respect of persons. Notice he's prepared it for the king. Now, which king? The most obvious answer is from two verses before. And when we speak of the Assyrian, this king of Assyria, it appears in this time in Isaiah, the looming threat is the same Assyria that came and destroyed the northern kingdom. And as we'll read a few chapters later, as I've spoken to already from Isaiah, the uh, of Hezekiah, who is dealing with this issue of Assyria. It's a present danger. God will take care of that king. But previous in this very chapter, we have another king, Pharaoh, being spoken of. And God will take care of him, too. And there's another king spoken of in Isaiah 14, the king of Babylon, which is a very fitting image of the devil if you read it. And God will take care of that king, too. Indeed, we read in Matthew 25:41. That hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. All those kings will be destroyed in this place of Tophet. And all their people with them. Not only the king, but all who have served sin with them. So we hear of its preparation by a decree. And God then, in fulfillment of that decree prepared it also by creating it before he created any men who one day would live there. He, as it says, hath made it. He made hell. We're not told in Genesis 1 exactly when it is. It could be in that very first verse when God created the heavens and the earth. It could be on the second day when God created the sky above the earth that he would also create the hell under the earth. We're not told when. But the fact is true. And God make all, made all things in those six days. And hell is one thing for sure. That he made then. It, he made as well. Paradise. The third heaven. In which believers will live with Christ forever. And that's called in scripture. Paradise. How fitting then. That there would be this opposite. Of paradise. Not a garden of delights but a valley of slaughter, Tophet, Gehenna. He made it. He prepared it by decree and by creation. We read third of its size. It says that he hath made it deep and large. There's enough room in it to fit all of God's enemies. If we look ahead to chapter 37, verse 36, we read the story you're familiar with of how God slaughtered 185,000 Assyrians. Now, it's possible that this, that could have been an initial fulfillment of this prophecy and that Hezekiah had come and he had prepared the Valley of Hinnom by removing from it before they came back again, the high places and the altars. And it could have been indeed that very place that the Assyrians were all slaughtered. But what is sure is that this place will fit at least all those and many, many more. We read forth of its torments. It speaks of the torments themselves. That they are first horrible torments. We hear of a fire and of a stream. Could be translated a torrent of brimstone. That means sulfur. Take your mind back to the first time we read of fire and brimstone. It's the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19, 24. And throughout the Bible, then, we read of this fire mixed with burning sulfur. You can smell it, can't you? It speaks to us in a very powerful way of the experience of burning judgment. Revelation one eight, for example, the very end of the Bible, we read of the lake of fire that burns with brimstone. God is drawing on a fairly common human experience of volcanoes in which we see a terrible burning coming from the earth. That burning with, mixed with sulfur is an image God uses often to speak of the horrible torments of hell, but also the perpetual torments. We have here a pile. You could call this a pyre, like a, fu- like a pagan funeral pyre on which someone would be burned, but not at all for honor, but totally for dishonor. A pile with much Wood. Do you see the size that is being spoken of? There is so much wood that the fire will never be able to consume it all, pointing us again to natural phenomenon of the inner earth that we see a glimpse of in volcanoes that there is under the earth right now an unbelievably large sea of burning fire and sulfur. There is much wood and Tophet. But then we read, worst of all, of the tormentor. It is the breath of the Lord, Jehovah, that like a stream of brimstone doth kindle this pile of wood. The infinite Jehovah, by his infinite power, will be present in hell will be active in hell in judgment. We read, again in Matthew 25, when we read of the sheep and the goats, that God has prepared everlasting fire for the devil and his angels. And he tells all of the goats, depart from me, ye cursed. It tells us that in a sense, God will not be in hell. He won't be there in his grace and in his mercy. But on the other hand, we read in Revelation six sixteen, when sinners meet the God whom they've denied their whole life when he comes to cast them into hell and they cry out to the rocks to cover them, the hills to fall on them and to hide them from the wrath of the lamb, they know what this text is saying, that yes, God will be in hell Not in mercy, but in judgment. It's his very breath that will kindle the fires of hell. It's as if God's lungs are full of justice. And though his wrath is a strange work, in the sense that if we had never sinned, there would be no need of wrath. And God does not delight in wrath itself, though he does delight in justice. But given sin and given how it cries for justice, then for God to do this work of kindling the fires of hell is just as natural and as right as breathing. God would, so to speak, have to stop breathing. He'd have to stop living. He'd have to stop being God for the fires of hell to go out. There's our text, and it's four things that's taught us about hell. Let's gather them and add more from the rest of Scripture. The doctrine this evening is that hell is real, horrible, and just. First, that hell is real. I've assumed so far a definition, but let's make it clear what we mean by hell. That it is the place of eternal torment, whereby the total absence of God's mercy and the overwhelming presence of His justice, unrepentant sinners are punished for eternity in soul and body. This hell is proven by Scripture. You've seen it already, haven't you? How many passages we could go to to speak of this, especially in the New Testament and in the New Testament, especially in the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Mark 9, in Matthew 25, or remember vividly in Luke 16, when we read of that poor man who trusted the Lord and who went to the bosom of Abraham, but the rich man at whose gate he begged, that rich man died and went to hell, using another word there, Hades, but it says that he was in torment and he was not allowed even a drop of water. Scripture proves to us hell as well indirectly by the very fact of the salvation that it presents as its main message. It speaks to us in First Thessalonians 1 verse 10 of Jesus who delivers from the wrath to come. Indeed, what does the word salvation mean if it is not a deliverance from its opposite, from damnation? The very means as well of obtaining that salvation, how it was purchased, speak to us of hell. Because Jesus Christ, to save sinners, had to die. And what was his death but his bearing of the curse of hell. It was the hell that sinners deserved that Jesus bore on the cross. He, Paul says in Galatians 3.13, became a curse for us who believe in him. We can also prove hell from reasons. And this can help you when you speak to those who will not recognize the Bible They still have good reason to recognize hell, though, of course, they should also believe the word of God. Think of God's attributes that are evident in nature. Nature tells us, both outside us and within us, that God is an infinite God, that he's infinitely powerful, and he's infinite in every other way, in goodness, in holiness, in justice. And how could such a God, such an infinite God, Punished with any less than an infinite punishment. This is something that every man's conscience knows, and you can argue from. They go around scared of hell all day, though they'll usually not admit it. But it's why they often don't dismiss hell as some fairy tale, or they look down, or they look down, or just show pity toward us for believing something manifestly false. No. When we speak of hell as Christians, something speaks in here that agrees with us. Their conscience tells them that they owe God. And they know that it might not be very detailed knowledge, that that means they're owed hell for their unbelief and sin. False religion has its own way of testifying to hell because there are very few religions in the world that do not have some form of. Of hell. Think especially of civil justice and how it speaks to us of hell. How all the kings of this earth have their guns, their tanks, their bombs, their prisons, and their firing squads. If that is just and right for human kings, how much more just and right is it for the king of kings to have? his own infinite destruction at hand to deal with those who have broken his law much greater than any human law. So hell is real by scripture and by reason. Second, hell is horrible. If this word horrible applies to anything. It applies to hell. Think of all the words the Bible uses, some we've seen already. Fire. Think of the pain of fire. Just to touch a hot stove, how unbearable that pain. Imagine then sulfurous lava flowing and putting your whole hand in and leaving it there that would be a mere taste of what's put before us. For we're speaking of the whole soul and body being afflicted, not just by a physical fire and brimstone. These things are poor earthly pictures of a divine reality that is much worse than our experience can communicate. Think of what the Bible speaks of. Weeping as a feature of hell. Terrible sorrow. How it speaks of gnashing of teeth, the sign of extreme frustration and anger with no end in sight. How we read of the worm we've already read that dies not. Think of the worm, of especially of conscience, and how in hell it will gnaw at men forever, remembering all their sins which will have been played back for them at the final judgment, and their memories will never be able to let go of that rehearsal of their sins. But even more among their sins, the worst of all, the mercy that they spurned, some more than others, because some received more mercy than others. But all having at least received the mercy of life and breath and everything. And hell will be the place that they in their consciences will have to give an eternal account. What a terrible worm devouring forever. They'll be there in the outer darkness, scripture says. Without any of that light of God and of the Lamb that the righteous will enjoy in heaven without even the light of the sun in this lower earth. They'll be together there with the worst imaginable company, with billions of wicked men, all of whom will have the masks of their hypocrisy torn off, and they will appear there as the wretched, God-hating sinners that they are forever and forever They'll be there with the devil and his angels. And with them, they'll be there under ceaseless, active judgment. With no recourse, no repentance, no return, and no relief. Not even the relief of death. Because though they'll die forever... They will never die. They will live forever in order to die forever. Do you agree with me that hell is horrible? Do you agree that nothing is or could be more horrible except? The sin that made hell necessary. Do you see as well how foolish men are when they speak flippantly of hell? When they say of our North Carolina summer that it's hot as hell? They say of war with all its true terrors that war is hell? People who say this have no idea, they are clueless about how terrible hell really is. The light and momentary affliction of this life is nothing compared to an eternity of judgment in hell. It is horrible. And third, with all its horrors that rightly make us recoil as creatures who love our own flesh and love our fellow man, Nonetheless, with all those things, be clear that hell is just. It's right. It is right that there is a hell, and it's right that God sends men to hell. I want to build this case so that you agree with this completely. It is right for men to go to hell for only one sin let me put a point on it it doesn't even have to be their own one sin committed by our first father Adam who represented all of us in the covenant of works which was no injustice to us God did not have to make that covenant and Adam was right to take it what a fool he'd be not to accept the offer of eternal life on terms that he was able to meet. And yet, he failed. And in his failure, we all failed. In his disobedience, we disobeyed. For that all have sinned. As Paul says in Romans 5.12, But it's also true of one sin belonging to any man after Adam. Even if we could say that Adam hadn't sinned and we hadn't had his sin imputed and we somehow still started in this world and and we ourselves fell in sin, even so, at least for ourselves, that would be enough to send us into hell. And why is that? It's because the nature of God, that he is infinitely good, And so one violation of his infinite goodness, therefore, is infinitely bad. And for an infinitely bad sin, what else is just but an infinite punishment? We see this in how God speaks of his law. In Galatians 3.10, he tells us that as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. Under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who continueth not in all things which are written in the book of this law to do them. Do you hear that? All things. The law says one violation means death. Death. And without the grace of Christ, the law is our judge. One sin. James says it this way, that if you've broken one sin, then you've broken the whole of the commandments. They are inseparable. Now, people bring an objection here, but this is the right place to meet it. They say, how could a good God send men to hell? Do you understand how already, just speaking of one sin, we found the answer to that? the real question to respond to their question is this. How could a good God not send men to hell? Why does anyone not go to hell? Be sure of this. All men deserve it. One sin deserves hell. But my friends... We've committed much more than one sin. How many sins have we committed? We do not have the time to count them all here. Putting aside the amputation of Adam's sin, just think of our own. How as I prayed before we even began to sin in action, we were sinful in our natures. Indeed, I was born guilty, David says. A sinner when my mother conceived me. Our little infants, unable to do anything in itself, good or bad, nonetheless, in themselves, they are bad. They are born dead. And to be dead to God is a great sin before you even do the works of that death. But then from that nature comes all manner of unrighteousness. And as James says in chapter 3, verse 2, For in many things we offend all. That is, all of us. But then add to this, that all who go to hell commit the greatest sin of all, which is unbelief. This is a sin that's greater than all sins against the law because it is a sin against the gospel. The gospel that says, yes, the law will condemn you, but there's a new way to be saved. And it's not by the law, it's by faith in Jesus Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. Every sinner says to this, no thanks. They reject salvation. Christ himself put it this way in John 3:18, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And think what aggravation is added to this unbelief by those who have so much more reason than others to believe because they've known so much more about the gospel. Paul speaks of this, or whoever wrote Hebrews, in Hebrews 6 and 10. And in our text, if for the king of Assyria this pile is prepared, if, if for the king of Egypt or of Babylon, then how much more is it prepared for wicked kings of Israel and Judah, who knew better than all of those men? How much more is it prepared for an Esau, for a Saul, and for a Judas. The poet Dante wrote in his Inferno of the different levels of hell. It's imaginative, and we don't believe that he's speaking of what's actually there, but it is useful to hear this poet's imagination when he looks at Judas there in the deepest, the ninth circle of hell, where everything is frozen solid. And Satan's there, half submerged in ice, And there's Judas, head first in the mouth of Satan, being gnawed on for eternity. And Satan's claws, still active, are scraping off the flesh of his back continually. That's a picture. No doubt what's happening to Judas is worse than even those words can convey. Because Judas, more than any other man, was blessed with the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, the knowledge he rejected in unbelief. Do you see, then, that hell is real, that hell is horrible, but that hell is right? I bring you tonight one application of this doctrine. And it's to think, to meditate on hell. As Isaiah says in that last verse of his book, to go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have rebelled against God. I want to give you for this meditation motives, a method, and a manner First, the motives. Why would you do this? We need to be motivated to this task because it is very unpleasant. One motive is a love for truth. Paul desired to teach to the people the whole counsel of God. That's my desire in bringing you this text tonight. It ought to be your desire in meditating upon these facts. Just the fact that this is in the Bible is enough reason for you to think on it. God didn't waste his words. He taught us these things. They're meant to be meditated on. We ought to love them because they're true. And we ought to love them especially because these truths in our age are so despised. Indeed, for the sake of defending the truth, meditation is so useful because this doctrine, more than many others, exposes false religion in our day. And especially... False Christianity. It's people who are ashamed of fire and brimstone preachers, as they call them, who are likely believing in gross errors about God. It should be clear to you that no preacher can preach the Bible without being a fire and brimstone preacher. This is basic to Christianity. It's an essential element of the gospel presentation. It is a truth of the word of God. We ought to love it. But second is the glorification of God. Because thinking on these things is a way our minds bring glory to God because this doctrine among others particularly highlights his sovereignty and that's something that we should be thinking of that god as the potter is free to make some for honorable use and some for dishonorable he is free to prepare vessels for destruction it it shows us as well his justice that he is the God, as he says in Exodus 34, who will by no means clearly guilty. But then it shows us by contrast as well, the depths of his mercy. He speaks of the vessels of destruction in Romans 9.22. But in the very next verse, he speaks of how those very vessels of destruction, by contrast, speak of mercy and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had afore prepared unto glory think of paul's statement in galatians 2:20 he loved me and gave himself for me what that means is that christ took hell for paul the more he knows that the more he'll glorify him with a thankful recognition of his mercy it also vindicates God's attributes which are so abused in this age. People speak of mercy and love and grace and they don't speak of the in the right way of these things. An objection comes here, God loves all people, they say, as if that means you should not talk about hell. But the answer is obvious, isn't it? If he loves all people, why would he send so many people to hell? Yes, God loves all men in that he gives them life and breath and everything. They don't deserve it. That's very loving. And none of them can say at the end of the day when he does condemn them, you weren't loving to me, God. No, he was. And yet God exercises his love according to his sovereignty as he is right to do. And there are many he does not love in a saving way. Hell is not a place of love. Hell is a place of hatred and destruction. And the fact of it helps us vindicate God himself, whose name is tarnished by so many false representations today. Third, a motive, it brings salvation to ourselves. Think of what a help this is to conversion. If you're unconverted here tonight, you're a child of hell. God will not spare the king. Don't think that he'll spare you. If he has room for the 185,000 Assyrians and 185,000 times more than that, he certainly has room for you. And for you, unbeliever, there is, as there was for Judas, your own place, as Peter says, prepared for you. You need to think on this, you need to go home. You need to think about hell. If you won't do it for God's sake or for your soul's sake, do it for my sake. I'm telling you, go home and think about hell. This thinking might save your soul and teach you then to flee from the wrath to come and to Jesus. delivers from that wrath but for the converted believer what a help this is to your sanctification as well it's a help to your mortification christ said that plainly in mark 9 if anything's to cause you to sin better to cut it off be at your own hand than that you go to hell where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched christ is not telling believers that they ought not be assured that they are going to heaven, that they ought think that God has changed his mind and he's going to send a believer to hell because He sinned. That's not what it means. But nonetheless, the believer ought to know what his sins do deserve and where indeed he would go if he did not repent. Because every believer who perseveres to heaven perseveres in the way of repentance. And without repentance, you won't go to heaven. The believer should be assured of that. We should be assured that we must, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body if we would live. Think about how this doctrine helps as well with zeal, which gives a zest and a courage and a strength to our holiness in this life. Hell, the fires indeed of hell, can be under that pot of your mind, a heat to set you to boiling, boiling up and overflowing with good works. Think on hell for your sanctification. Think on hell as well for the salvation of others. Jude speaks of pulling sinners out of the fire. The more you think about that fire that they're in, and that they'll be in forever, the more motivation you'll have to pull them out. Imagine that you're on a plane and you're sitting next to this person wondering if you should even say hi, much less talk to them about the gospel. Imagine for a moment your plane crashing and all 100, 200, 300 people in that plane hitting the earth. Their bodies will stop right there, but their souls will keep going. And if they don't know Christ, they will speed down through the earth right into hell. That will help you in seeking their souls good. Now, being motivated by these things, we need to know how to do it. So a method. This is a method that you can follow in meditating on any topic in the scripture, and I want to help you in that way. First, observe suitable occasions. There are particular times well-suited to thinking about hell. One is under affliction. David spoke in Psalm 116 of the pains of hell that gat hold upon me, He's speaking of death, bringing its arms around him. And that happens in sickness and in sorrows and difficulties. It's as if we can smell hell right there next to us. We ought to think then about it. Jonathan Edwards knew this. You're familiar with his resolutions. Number 10 was this, resolved when I feel pain to think of the pains of martyrdom and of hell. Another occasion is the death of others, especially the death of unbelievers. Ecclesiastes 7.2 tells us that it's better to be in the house of mourning. That there the living will lay it to heart, that that's the end of all men. This doctrine ought to be laid to heart, especially at the time when, as far as we can tell, a man has entered hell. You ought to think on hell as well when you feel the power of hell in temptations and in falls into sin. The book of Proverbs speaks this way, and I want to arm you with this help. One way to keep yourself from sin is to consider sin's end which is always hell. And certainly the devil's intention is to bring every sinner down to hell. Chapter 5, verse 5, speaking of the strange adulteress, her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold on hell. Think on that when you're in temptation. Second in the method is to divide the doctrine, to think not just about it as a broad concept or not just the word hell, but to pick a text about it and to analyze it. Go through, as I've tried to show you with this text in Isaiah, point by point, consider what it's teaching. Consider the names of hell throughout the Bible. Consider the properties of hell that the Bible speaks. Consider, so to speak, the whole pile that's set before you and every stick in its much wood. Anything worth thinking about is worth thinking about in this detail. But then also, third, think deeply. Hell is deep and wide, and so should your thoughts of it be. At this point, you must learn to ignore your discomfort and to ignore your excuses. It's hard to think of hell. It's harder to keep thinking of hell. But you must keep thinking about it. You might say at this point that you would fear imbalance. Obviously, we're not to think only of hell as Christians. And that could be a problem. But if it is, you ought to fix it, not by thinking less about this truth, but by thinking more on other truths. And indeed, from this truth, taking the natural connection of it to every other truth and using that to lead you to other truths, as we've already seen how damnation and salvation are so closely connected in the Scriptures. Use those connections for your help. But then apply these things carefully. If your mind is like a forge for metal, from, in, from your mind comes the metal of your Christian life, so to speak, then just as the Lord kindles tophet by a stream of brimstone, so you ought to kindle that forge until all your impurities are purged away. And you come forth shining as gold. Press on in these meditations until they change you. We despise the false doctrine of purgatory of the papists. It's a lie. But in this way, you might take the true doctrine of hell and make it a sort of purgatory in your life. Use meditation upon hell to burn up, as Paul says, all that hay and wood and stubble that still remains in your Christian life so that you might be saved today, now, as by fire, as he says in 1 Corinthians 3.15, so that the last day would not surprise you and so many of your works would be burned up. Apply this meditation to your life. Third and finally then, knowing why and how we ought to meditate on hell, we need to know the manner in which we must do so. And it's important to be clear here with this doctrine, for it must be handled with great care. You must meditate first, soberly. There's no way that such meditation can abide in your mind while you're still silly, or childish, or effeminate. It's impossible. These two things cannot coexist. You must be sober as you think of hell. These meditations are a call to mature Christian manhood. And they also are a help to that end. Think of Peter, how he speaks of the fires that will come and melt the elements with burning heat, 2 Peter 3. And he asks then, if this is true, what sort of people should we be? And we ought certainly to be a sober people. But then second, you must meditate reverently. Thinking on these things clearly demand of us that we put away All silly talk, especially about damnation. I've mentioned some things already. but Think of how freely people say such things as, damn this, damn that. Oh, when you hear that, you should worry. They have no idea what terrible power they are calling on. They try to make it cute and say something like, I'll be darned. That is grievous. That should never leave your mouth, dear Christian. Instead, learn from the saints and angels in Revelation 8-1 that when the seventh, the final seal of judgment was opened, there was silence in heaven for half an hour. We must meditate reverently. Third, we must meditate humbly, overwhelmed both before the sovereignty of God on display, confessing his right as the potter to fit vessels according to his decision, to be overwhelmed before his justice, confessing his right to judge all men, including me, and with the publican, smiting our breasts and pleading no merit and only mercy. But then knowing, as Christ said, that that publican went home to his house justified. Finally, I call you to meditate on hell, thankfully. Be thankful to God that he has revealed to you such a useful doctrine. That he has in loving kindness warned you of the wrath to come. And he has done it. If indeed he has, dear Christian, he's done it for your salvation. The same breath of the Lord That kindles the pile of Tophet as with a stream of brimstone, has kindled in your heart a fire that purges, but that does not destroy. Indeed, a fire that makes you impervious to all the fires of hell. So that though Tophet is a place prepared for countless sinners and even for great kings, It's not prepared for you. You can meditate safely on the mournful cries of the damned because in your case they are answered by the cry of Christ upon the cross and of the cry of his blood that speaketh better things than all of these. You can safely peer into the abyss. And when your stomach churns at the sight, when your knees grow weak, when you uh, behold God's infinite power to destroy, and when you fear that you might fall in, that same infinite power holds you safe and will never let you slip this is good reason to meditate upon hell thankfully may the lord give us grace to do this let's stand to pray oh holy god holy holy Holy, holy God, what can we say but with Isaiah? Woe is me, for I am undone. Who can dwell with the everlasting burnings? You, Lord, are more holy, too holy even to look Upon sin. You hate all workers of iniquity. You will destroy the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. You have ordained hell and built it for the glory of your justice. And no man in hell or in heaven or upon the earth can say anything against you. For you have done that which is right. And just, and we bow before your awesome sovereignty and justice and majesty, and we reverently adore our God, our loving and gracious God, who will by no means clear the guilty. Lord, help us in these meditations to know you. And help us in thinking of the wrath to come, to flee from it. We pray especially for those who may even tonight, even denying it now, and yet it's true, be children of hell. O oh God, O oh God, by our words, by our prayers, we would snatch them tonight from the fire. Would you please do this work? We may be means in your hand, but all the power comes from you. Would you, dear Father, powerfully save the lost? And would you powerfully sanctify us, your people, that you would purge away from us all of our dross, that we might shine like gold? Please, Lord, use these meditations to make us a holy people living in a godly fear with thankfulness for deliverance through Jesus from the wrath to come. We pray these things in his blessed name. Amen.